to the second episode of Open Channels, a podcast series presented by Cook Medical. This episode is in collaboration with the Endourologic Society and the Journal of Endourology. For this episode, we will be discussing stenting solutions, present and future. I'm Dr. Kimora Scotland from UCLA, and I will be moderating today. I will be joined by Dr. Ben Chu from University of British Columbia in Vancouver and Dr. Bradley Schwartz from Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. Doctors, hello. Hi, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So we wanted to get started by talking about what our issues are with stenting, both as physicians and what we imagine the patient's issues would be with stenting as it currently stands. So Dr. Schwartz, what do you think are some of the issues or concerns that patients will have with stents? I think a lot of it is even prior to the procedure, but even in the counseling of patients as to what procedures they might need. Once you've gone down the road of counseling and trying to discuss either lithotripsy, ureteroscopy, or percutaneous nephrolithotomy, there are discussions that have to be made as far as what will the patient be experiencing postoperatively. And I will tell you that I think those are very interesting because a lot of experienced stone patients have their desires and wishes known even prior to the surgery because of their past experiences. And so you might be going down the road of ureteroscopy versus PCNL. And in your mind, you're saying, that is perfect for ureteroscopy. PCNL is overkill. But because of the stent placement afterwards, they've already decided they don't want ureteroscopy. So I think that stent-related symptoms are probably one of the most difficult obstacles we have with stents. There are other categories such as placement, the post-operative phone calls, migration, incrustation, et cetera. But most of the literature would suggest that upwards of 80% of patients who have indwelling ureteral stents have at least one or two symptoms post-operatively. And you don't get incrustation, migration, failure of any of those categories nearly that high. So I think quality of life and stent-related symptoms is a huge topic, a huge discussion issue with the patients, and clearly an obstacle to well-being after any of the stone procedures that we offer. The other thing that I've found is that patients who are first-time stone formers will sometimes come in after having spoken to friends and family members who have stones, and they're coming in with expectations based on what they're told by those people. I've had patients who are very adamant that they don't want stents because of the experiences of their friends. And so I think that's something that we're going to have to be more in tune to moving forward. Dr. Chu. What are your thoughts on some of the things that we as physicians are going to have to deal with with stents? I think besides the phone calls that Brad has already mentioned, helping patients make their decisions based on this. I've had patients say, you know, I don't want a stent. And then you ask them further, they said, well, have you ever had one? They say, no, but my neighbor had one. My cousin had one. It was terrible. They told me never to have one. And this really does affect what kind of therapy that they want to have. So I think that's the biggest thing. But certainly, I think it's probably the worst part of a ureteroscopy. And a lot of patients tell me it was like, it's actually worse than the stone. They actually felt that the stone wasn't as bad as the stent. So I think that's really one of the biggest issues is getting it to the patient. And I still stent about 95% of the time after I do a ureteroscopy, whether they're using access sheath or not. And really only those sort of distal stones that may or may not be pre-stented or just you know ones that you kind of pluck out would be the ones that I wouldn't stent. But I still stent about 95% of the time and most of the time for about five days. 
I have to say, I have a little bit of an advantage when I talk to my patients because I have had two ureteroscopies and two stents in my day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of like the Mark Spitz in the swimming pool uh-huh. accident that you have. But, you know, the stents were bad. And I have to say that I don't believe that the stent was worse than the stone episode. But I do have to say that my quality of life is significantly diminished. It did occupy my mind for quite a long time post-operatively. I did have strings on it once and I had it removed in the clinic once. So I've had both of those experiences as well. So I can at least share with my patients their angst. And, you know, it's kind of like doing office cystoscopy, right? The vast majority of at least males, you know, they come in sweating. They come in, you know, really completely agitated over this, what we would consider a fairly simple office procedure. And you just have to tell patients that 95% of the time, the procedure is not nearly as bad as you thought it was going into it. And I think Dr. Chu is completely right in that the preoperative counseling and discussion with the patients, and that's been shown in a number of studies that, you know, these pathways moving forward, if you have someone who can actually spend time with them and discuss with them what the symptoms are, have an algorithm of medications and pharmacotherapies that you choose, these might be very relevant and very successful in at least trying to curb some of the phone calls, ER visits, readmissions, and again, a lot of the angst of these patients. So I think preoperative education and counseling are very, very important for many of these folks coming in. So Dr. Schwartz, you mentioned this idea of patient quality of life with stents. Do you think then that it's possible that patient comfort could influence their patient satisfaction scores? I would hope not, but I think that's a great point. Clearly, you know, your overall experience is going to be directed towards the forces that acted upon you. You try to use a little bit of art of medicine at that point and try to make sure the patients realize and understand that they're getting a very good procedure and they're getting the state of the art and the gold standard. But there are things that go along with these and not all surgeries and not all procedures are perfect. Again, I do believe that The preoperative counseling, you know, the shared patient experience is extremely important. And the days of walking into a room and saying, oh, yeah, you have a four millimeter stone. I'll see you Thursday. We're doing your reteroscopy. You might have some pain afterwards. Those days are clearly way in the past. And I do believe that you need to have a significant discussion of the expected postoperative outcome if you're going to enhance their overall experience towards you, the hospital, your staff, et cetera. All those are related. That's a great question. And it is unfortunate, but that's where I think the education preoperatively is very important. And Dr. Chu, I know you've been interested in quality of life as it pertains to stent patients for a while and stone patients. What are your thoughts on how much we should be telling patients about stents and stones and how that affects their quality of life so that not just in the preoperative time frame, but you know, afterwards, they're aware of what might be happening? So that's a great question. I think like Dr. Short said, we really have to update our patients and really let them know and what to expect. And I think that's one of the biggest issues to make sure that they know what to expect. Otherwise, it'll be very difficult for them. So I think knowing that they'll have flank pain when they void and also hematuria. Um, sometimes I'm so rushed, I forget to tell a patient something and they call the office or they go to see another doctor, their family physician or the emergency because they had blood in their urine. And of course, it's 100% expected with the stent, but I forgot to tell them. The nurse forgot to tell them. The next thing you know, they're on antibiotics because they have blood in the urine, white cells in the urine and pain. Oh my gosh, must be an infection. And I always do tell the patient too, I said, if you go and see another doctor, they'll be convinced you have an infection when you don't because the symptoms are all the same. 
So I think certainly letting them know that so that they'll say, yeah, I did have that. And I'll tell them too, that usually the first 72 hours are the worst. And that's just something I have anecdotally for my patients, but also something that we've done in pig studies where we know that pigs that have been stented longer than 72 hours, something happens to the inflammatory markers and the peristalsis changes as well too. So somewhere between 48 to 72 hours, I tell them the first day or two are going to be the worst and then it'll settle down. And then, of course, that brings into the question, how long do you leave a stent? There was a really nice study done about three versus seven days, and they looked at whether or not people returned to the emergency room more frequently or had increased in their pain medications. And actually, the seven-day people did better than the three-day people. So after the first 72 hours, certainly your ureter becomes accustomed to it. You probably lose peristalsis. And rather than trying to reject this foreign object, your body probably starts to accept it a little bit more. And patients will usually tell you that the pain was worse in the first few days. I tend to leave mine for five days. And there was another study done about seven versus, it was either 14 or 28 days, and the seven-day people did better. So you know, I think between five to seven days, and there's good evidence to show that around that time is good. And then, the, of course, the removal varies your experience quite a bit. There was a good study done at Cleveland Clinic looking at whether or not you do it in the operating room under full general anesthetic, in the office with a cysto, a string by a healthcare worker, or a string by yourself. And the number one that patients liked the best was in the operating room under a general anesthetic. That's obviously a huge cost. It's a little bit crazy. I think we'll agree. It's a little bit overkill. Some places have to do it, and that's the way that their procedures are. But the second best one was at home with a string by yourself. And the worst one was an office cystoscopy awake. So that was certainly a thing. And I don't know if Dr. Schwartz has had a lot of those experiences. He's more dedicated to the science than I am undertaking it himself. So that's what I would say for patients. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think doing these under anesthesia is just a complete waste of resources, unfortunately. I would have almost liked to see that study without that even as being one of the arms, only because it distracts perhaps a little bit from how valuable or unvaluable the other options might be. And actually, in preparation for this, I was trying to look up because I can't remember any good literature that has surfaced regarding geographical kind of mores of stents. In other words, just within the United States, is the Northeast more sensitive to stent placement? Is West Coast different than the South? Are they different than the Mountain West region? Just within Illinois, is the Chicago metro area totally different than kind of the more rural area in which I live? And just in speaking to colleagues around the country and the world, the Chinese and the Asian folks I have a lot of interaction with, and just in discussing with various regions where I am, people just cannot stand stents at all. There is just a phobia. And my nurses and our ERs and the primary care physicians are absolutely inundated with calls, visits, pleas, infections, antibiotics, pain pills, and with this narcotic prescription thing we have going on, it really is extremely frustrating for me because I will talk to other regional areas and they look at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. It's like, well, we don't really have that problem. And I believe we counsel and educate our patients. It may be a health literacy issue. That could be one thing. But I don't understand the geographical kind of social issues that go around stent placement that my region and maybe perhaps other regions in the world are totally anti-stent. And many of my patients would rather have a nephrostomy tube rather than a stent. And they come in telling me that. And I don't have data for that, but there is actually some data to suggest there is a segment of population and the numbers are not that different where patient preference for a nephrostomy tube is more than a stent. 
So Brad, I use that argument all the time when I'm looking at a patient with a 15 millimeter UPJ stone and we're trying to decide between ureteroscopy and a PCNL. And I'm not as far into mini PCNLs as others are, but I think that's the perfect kind of size stone for that. I tell them too that, look, you're actually going to probably have less pain than if we go up your ureter, if we go through your back, because you won't have the stent. And plus, probably going up and down your ureter, the access sheath. Just anecdotally, there's no question that my ureteroscopy patients have way more pain than the PCNL patients do. I couldn't agree with you more. And again, I do think there's a lot of literature out there that would suggest these stentless, tubeless, sheathless ureteroscopies for three centimeter stones and their stone free rates are 90%. I think I'm pretty good, but I can't do that. I agree. Uh, not in my patient population. Yeah. And I would argue clearly that I could do a perk and get that patient stone free by CT evidence the next morning, probably about 80% of the time in about 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Not exaggerating. That's just what we do. The literature has to be standardized or scrutinized or something perhaps a little bit more before we all jump on this bandwagon of ureteroscopy for all. In that vein, are there some tips and tricks that you would recommend for stent placement with ureteroscopy? Let me ask you, Kamara, what percent are you stenting? Because one thing is don't leave a stent. Right. So I'm actually about 80 to 85 percent. And based on some published data and some data that hopefully will be published soon, what we found is that there are some negatives to stent placement that go beyond just stent pain. And from my perspective, what I've been doing with my patients when I have preoperative conversations with them is I tell them, listen, if your ureter looks like it's not irritated, there's no evidence of injury. We had a really easy in and out in terms of movement of the scope, are you willing to try not having a stent placed at the end of the procedure? And most patients will tell me that. You have to then, though, tell them that, listen, there is always a chance that you might have some postoperative inflammation and you might have some pain. So then you have to talk to them about ibuprofen. And I've had a couple of patients that I have had to talk about taking some ibuprofen. But then generally the next day they're doing fine. And so what I've found and the way that I feel that my practice has been changing is that I'm actually placing fewer stents now than I thought that I would be. Great points. I'm a lot older than both of you, I think, put together, but there was a, a guy named Joe Segura who used to practice urology for a little while. For and a little while. <laughs> his philosophy was he stents 100% of his patients 100% of the time. Yeah. He had several reasons. Obviously, his patient population was fairly migratory, so they would come in from distances and have to go back home. But his, I think, greater philosophy was this way, if we don't leave a stent and they still have pain, I don't know what it is. Is it a stone fragment? Is it a ureteral injury? Is it a blood clot? Is it edema? What is it? He doesn't know. If he leaves a stent and the patient complains of pain, it's 100% of the time stent-related symptoms. I personally believe we just need to move away from that. And that's pretty old. And I don't think that's really commonly adhered to anymore. But I do think that until we develop a stent that is really going to be optimal, we do need to really consider the patients we can leave without stents a lot more. The pre-stented patients, the uncomplicated stones, the patients with dilated ureters, the ones you don't have to use an access sheath rigorously. I still think you can use an access sheath and not leave a stent, but you have to select them carefully. 
if you have a patient that had a rough ureteroscopy and they live two hours away, you know, that's going to be a tough decision for the practitioner. In one sense, it's not your problem. They're two hours away and the local person has to take care of them. But I don't think that's good medicine. I think you need to take care of these folks and let them travel comfortably without being burdened by having to go back to the ER should they have a recurrence of any problems. So it's funny because Ben is 80%. It sounds like you're 20%. I'm, I don't know, 60% probably, 65%. Where you don't leave a stent? I do leave a stent. Yeah, I'm closer to like 90, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what you said before. And look, right where we taught, leaving a stent is never the wrong answer. When in question, if you ever have doubt, always leave a stent. I mean, I kind of do the Segura thing because then if you know that it's there, then they're having pain, then at least I know they're not obstructed and I don't have to take them back to do a stent because in my institution, that's a bit of a big deal to have to take them back and put a stent in and do other problems if they come in obstructed. You're right, though. It's not necessarily the best argument. But it is something that we do use. And the other question would be, I don't know if Segura said this, but I've always seen this on a bunch of slides too, that basically when you leave a stent or you don't leave a stent, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And then the other thing I heard, I don't know if it was him that said it, was not my bladder. <laughs> Goodness. Kimora, you said you might be publishing this, so I don't want to steal your thunder by any means, but is there an algorithm you've developed or is it still very, very subjective when you leave this? So the data that I'm alluding to is actually preclinical data. And so we're not working on an algorithm for that manuscript, but I'm actually working on another study as we speak where we're hopefully going to be presenting an algorithm for how to treat patients with stents, because I think it's necessary. I think this is a conversation that I've had with so many people internationally as well. How do we treat patients? What does 2025 and 2030 and 2035 look like for us with patients with stents? And clearly what we're doing is not working for everybody. And so we've got to start thinking about ways to work with what we've got. In a little bit, as you mentioned, we'll start talking about what we would like the future of stents to look like. But until we get there, we've certainly got to get a better way of managing patients. You started this subcategory with any tips and tricks for stent placement. I would love to hear what both of your thoughts are on how to measure the proper length of a stent. Because people ask me that every single day, and I just kind of look at them and I say, what kind of coin do you have? If you have a quarter, you can see in the dark the heads and tails pretty easily. If you use a dime, it's very difficult. So I could probably learn from you guys what you do. but We look at shoe size. <laughs> In centimeters or in inches? Uh, European sizing. What's your most commonly used length that you would say? If I had to be on a deserted island and stock my shelf, I would use a 624 90% of the time. Yeah, me too. How about you, Kamara? I would agree with that. And I know that because it's really 90%, 95% of the time what you would use, I almost always will ask the nurses to bring that in. Based on where I am, what hospital I am, it's easier or more difficult to bring in a couple of stents. And so I will say, bring me a 22, a 24, and a 26, because those are the ones that really you're going to be using. You do have the odd patient who will be a 28, the odd patient who might be a 20. But generally speaking, I'll bring those three. And then in terms of sizing, you know, I don't do any of the numbers. I was trained to do the numbers, look at the x-ray, look at the CT, you know, all these different things. And it all turns out in the end that you're guessing a number. It's never going to be always correct. And so what I tend to do is I look at the patient when I'm in the operating room. I think with time, you get a sense of how far am I going with this scope when I'm going up the ureter, and then you just use your best guess. 
I've been surprised. So I use 24 most of the time. And, you know, being in Vancouver, we have smaller Asian ladies a lot as well, too. And I'll use often a 22 in them, sometimes even a 20. But I've been surprised that sometimes when I see someone quite short with quite a long ureter, you're in there and you shoot the retrograde or you have your scope up. Like, wow, this kidney is either very high. This ureter is quite long. So I would say 24 most of the time. I don't measure I do like that one study that looked at if you just take the vertical length of the UPJ down to the UPJ on a CT scan and literally just measure from there and then add 20%. And that 20% will take into account the sort of anterior, posterior travel of the ureter. But I think most of them require about a 24 centimeter and 26. Now, this brings to the question, I know some places that I've trained to where I feel like, well, we use a 26 most of the time. And the reason why is because you can't make a stent longer, but you can make a stent shorter. So if it's too long, that doesn't matter. But if it's too short, that's obviously a problem. Do you guys see a problem with leaving a 26 centimeter stent to someone who deserves a 24 or even a 22? I think they might have enhanced bladder symptoms. There's a couple studies that would suggest that anything crosses the midline has a higher incidence of symptoms. There are studies obviously looking at the tail stents, the Polaris and the other kind of horsehair stent that comes out. They really had no difference in symptoms than just a general double J stent, which tells me that virtually any element of bladder irritation is going to give stent-related symptoms that are going to require some kind of a management. I guess there are two things that I would say about the stent length is that I've not read this anywhere and we should probably study it or look at it somehow. But when I look at the renal pelvis in relation to the 12th rib, that has been a pretty decent gauge for me to tell whether I need a 24 or 26 stent. And if it sits above the 12th rib, clearly if it sits above the 11th rib, you know, on the x-ray that you're just doing under fluoro right there, then I definitely get a longer stent. And I also use any ureteral tortuosity to, like Ben said, that you mentioned that add 20%. If there's any tortuosity, if it's an obstructing stone distally, right, and they get that serpiginous route up proximally, in my opinion, you do need to add that extra two centimeters. And you just hate to get in there and have a tough stent and you're struggling and then suddenly you put it in and you get by this obstruction and yada, 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 and then suddenly you're left short and you have to replace it and get a different stent in. But the shorter patients, you know, really, really short patients, 22, I do not use and I do not like the variable length stents. Me neither. I do think that there is, again, I don't think it's been published, but you have more exposure to lithogenic substance with more material in the bladder, more material in the renal pelvis. And I think they're more uncomfortable. Again, I'm not sure there's really good data to support that. It's just an anecdotal kind of a roundtable discussion comment that I can make. So towards that end, though, uh, you mentioned the different sorts of materials. Dr. Chu, can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are in terms of the different types of materials that we've been using now, for instance, polyurethane, silicone, etc., and what their effects might be on patient discomfort? Yeah, there hasn't been a really good all-inclusive, all-encompassing study done some time with all the different materials, but I think we've come a long way from just the pure polyurethane Silicone is one of the most biocompatible materials, certainly in terms of things not growing on it. It's very soft. It doesn't irritate tissues as much. One of the challenges of silicone, however, was the fact it required quite a bit of it in order to make a lumen. So in terms of the lumen on the stents, they're usually a lot smaller because you needed more material to get that axial rigidity. Sometimes they're harder to place because they don't have as much axial rigidity and you need to do it over hydrophilic wire, which can sometimes be just a little bit more finicky. 
However, the newer stents that have come out that are silicone-based, so the Cook still has their silicone stent, used to be known as the Black Beauty, and then also uh, the Coloplast Imogen stent. Basically, it's a bit of a polymer blend that's proprietary. I don't really know exactly what's in it, but certainly the axle rigidity in that is a lot better now. We don't even know whether it's better to have a firm versus a soft stent. We really don't know. For instance, the new Boston Scientific stent, the Tria stent, has a firm and a soft format. And really, it's not even known which one is actually going to be better. So in the end, I guess my short answer is we don't really know. Well, let's talk now about extrinsic versus intrinsic compression. What the differences are and what types of stents exist to manage both of these issues. Dr. Schwartz? I think the definition is important. I think the listeners should be aware of kind of the two different entities. I just basically look at it as really just what the words inherently mean. Extrinsic compression is compression of the ureter that arises from outside the wall of the ureter. These, I think, are most commonly related to malignancies in the pelvis or metastatic disease. It could be lymph nodes. It could be direct extension. It could be radiation therapy, prior surgical procedures that create fibrosis and things like that. So anything external to the inherent muscular properties of the ureter would be considered extrinsic. And then the intrinsic would be things like scar from stone disease, scar from prior procedures, upper tract urothelial carcinoma, anything that might cause muscle hypertrophy within the lumen or within the musculo-mucosal layer of the ureter that is inherent to the ureter. And I think they both present the different set of challenges to stent placement, stent success, and even maybe to a degree stent comfort. Although it's been my experience that when you're really dealing with an obstructive process from, let's say, extrinsic compression from a non-neurologic cancer, stent-related symptoms tend to be a little bit secondary to the other problems such as obstruction, incrustation. We get this failure of stents that we can't really describe or define. And that's been my frustration. I think it is important to at least realize what the obstruction might be coming from, just so that you know you can give the patient options. You might choose different stents. I think you're going to have a lot more problem placing a stent from intrinsic obstruction because the lumen tends to be more obliterated than you will from extrinsic obstruction because you can usually try to sneak by that obstruction pretty well if the mucosa is not interrupted or irritated at all. To add to Dr. Schwartz's comments, radiation is not your friend. Radiation strictures are tremendously difficult to treat, in my opinion. And I find them very difficult, very easy to recur. And the more you fiddle around there with your ureteroscopy on their initial presentation with a stone or whatever, I find the worse it can be and the worse it can come back. The ways that I have to sort of deal with intrinsic compression, the Cook Metal Resonance Stents are really good products in terms of the fact you can leave them in for a long time and they really do resist external compression, particularly when it's a malignant ureteric obstruction from an external node or a mass pushing on it. That works really, really well. Some studies have shown it to be not quite as effective when it's a benign etiology. So I think that would be more intrinsic in terms of scar tissue, radiation, other strictures and things like that, rather than something pushing in on the outside. So when it's the actual tissue itself, I think that one doesn't do as well. I think in those circumstances, there's been some studies showing that tandem ureteral stents work quite well. So putting up two polymer stents side by side. And when you do do this, what happens is even if they do get crushed from the outside, there's still a space in between the two to allow drainage. One of the techniques on placing a tandem stent is not to place one and then place the next one after it, because that second one may push 
the first one up into the kidney. You need to put two guide wires up and slide them in at the same time. And if the ureter is really tight at that area, it's actually better to balloon dilate first and then put two guide wires up and then slide those two stents up at once. That's great in your experience. I think we've had a little different experience in that malignant ureteral obstruction has a much higher failure rate than benign. And so when we're dealing with metastatic ovarian cancer, colon cancer, radiation from malignant disease, et cetera, they fare worse than, let's say, a chronic UPJ obstruction that is not a surgical candidate chronic stone disease and really debilitated older patients who don't want any therapy. Retroperitoneal fibrosis is considered a benign treatment, and even those patients actually tend to have a fairly good longevity of these stents. And we've had resident stent patients go out as far as two years before we have to change them. That's anecdotal, there's no question, but we have published our literature that these folks can last a while, but the malignant patients definitely, at least in our hands, have fared worse over time. The other thing I will say is the urologists forget what profession is responsible for the most ureteral injuries, right? It's urologists. And virtually all of those are probably going to be intraluminal or intrinsic from the procedures that we perform. Obviously, any open surgery or external pelvic surgery that we perform, we're at risk of injuring the ureter externally or extrinsically. So great discussion. I agree with Ben 100% that you have something intrinsically, you're automatically dealing with perhaps a little more challenging issue. And anytime you do a procedure on that type of patient and keep placing their stents, you're going to theoretically be worsening the disease and progressing the disease along to make your subsequent treatments more difficult. Agreed. So I think that anything that I would have to add to that would be anecdotal. We haven't published any of our data with regards to resonance stents or with regard to long-term stenting. What I have found, though, is that in those patients who potentially have benign extrinsic compression and we're not as worried about malignant compression, those patients who are going to have stents for years and years, presumably for some reason, we're not able to have a procedure to treat whatever is causing their compression those patients tend to have a lot of comorbidities. And so how does that influence your treatment for them? Because, you know, there are then other characteristics of the stents that you might have to take into consideration, given what else the patient might be dealing with. I think that just brings up the whole question about other comorbidities and do they even need a stent? And looking at their lifespan, what their symptoms are, do they even need a nephrostomy tube or decompression essentially? So what's the cancer like? What's their prognosis? Are they getting symptoms? Is it pain? Is it recurrent infections and nephritis? I don't think there's a clear cut and dry case you can have for every patient. I think every patient deserves their own investigation and decision process. Making the decision to even just place that initial stent when they present with hydro, when they present with sepsis, when they present with pain, or if they present completely asymptomatically, but your oncologist, your primary care, your internist, your nephrologist, they're all pushing you to divert the urine. The minute you make the decision to place that first stent in the face of true obstruction, you're kind of stuck a little bit. I then go down my algorithm of management or definitive therapy. And management, I don't know any other way other than a stent and a nephrostomy tube. Those are the only two ways I know of, or nephrectomy. But I guess that's treatment, not management. 
those are your only real options. I know the Europeans, there are some people keen on tunneling the nephrovesicle route where you can take a renal pelvis catheter and tunnel it through the subcutaneous tissue, through the flank, through the abdomen, and enter the bladder. But changing those is really quite a surgical procedure. And the encrustation is not really any different than any other stent. So that might be variable. They might get their stents changed every three months or eight months. Not really very enjoyable. But the minute you make that first decision, because they have these comorbid conditions, they're older age, they really don't want any procedures done. They have a very, very hostile abdomen, radiation, surgical procedures, colostomies. You can't really get a reimplant going. You're stuck. If you take out a stent and they have a preliminary infected system that's obstructed, they're going to have, I think, very serious problems going down the road. You can't just remove the drainage. You have to keep going with something. And that's where your stent decisions come in. And I am very big on the metal stents. There's only one that's FDA approved in the United States, the resident stent. We use it all the time, but it's still not a perfect stent. Great. When you're talking about placing tandem stents, what I would say to folks who haven't done it before is make sure that you have a second person to help you because it's very difficult to place tandem stents on your own. I know that many urologists will do these procedures on their own. We place stents on our own all the time. But when it comes to tandem stents, it's really helpful to have a second pair of hands. And so that is something that I would do at least for the first couple of times that you place tandem stents to make sure that you have some backup there. Great point. So let's move on to COVID-19. I'd be interested to hear how each of you managed your stent placements and exchanges during this period and how you think that might affect your future practice. Dr. Chu? So this is one of the things that actually came into our high acuity category. So we were only doing certain things. So obviously, if someone came to the emergency and had obstruction and urosepsis, they would get a stent. But the other things that we would continue to do were patients who were needing a stent change, and we know are encrusters. So I think everyone has a few of these in their practice, at least. And certainly I had some people who were coming up in their times. And I know if I leave them too long, I've had this one lady who we left it in a little bit too long, and she required four operations to get it out, a couple of perks, ureteroscopy, and basically a perk, ureteroscopy, and then a perk again to kind of take out the last of the fragment. So I definitely made sure that she was high up on the list. She was actually scared to come in, but I told her she needed to have it done because I didn't want to operate on her four times again just to get a stent out. And that was one of the things. So certainly stent changes, people who I knew were at high risk were getting it done. The people coming in with stones who were having pain, I know that some centers were just switching over to nephrostomy tube insertion only because it didn't require aerosolizing generating procedures by intubation we would still consider treating patients if they had acute kidney injury. And if we're going to put them under for a stent, we basically said, we're just going to go ahead and do the whole ureteroscopy because really the biggest problem is the aerosolizing generating procedure at the beginning. At that point, we were waiting half an hour and then going in and we weren't wearing N95s at that point, only the anesthesia and a nurse, everyone else out of the room intubate, wait half an hour, go in, and we might as well just treat the whole stone, obviously if they weren't infected. And then we would just do a ureteroscopy that way. So that's what we were doing. It's pretty interesting. During this historical episode we're in, I think we are not 
necessarily left to the decision-making. A lot of the patients are refusing to come in and they might have ureteral colic and they're definitely postponing their visit to the ER or to us until some of this blows over. So I don't know, but we might start seeing some delayed problems from indwelling stones and obstruction and ureteral stricture from ischemia, from longstanding stones in the ureter, et cetera. Only time will tell. We've been pretty much forced to abide by, I think we all are aware of, there's a couple different scoring systems or triage systems that are in place. One is the NEST and one is the, I forget the name offhand, the ERAS or ERATS system that grades surgical acuity. We can make the case that a lot of these obstructing stones are in the 3A category, which is urgent but not emergent from the standpoint that we are risking renal function. We're risking repeat visits to the ER. We're risking infectious etiology should we have abnormal urine. So in the non-septic acute colic patient a year ago, who we would freely admit stent and or, as Ben mentioned, finish the stone at the same setting, We're trying to classify these and play in the sandbox with everybody so that we don't really just overburden our ORs. We have now opened up a little bit to more elective cases, so that's not necessarily as big of a problem anymore. But clearly, we're trying to triage these folks accordingly. And as far as stenting them, there is no question that for the last two to three months, I have either not stented or left strings on the stents more than I would have normally. There's no question. Agreed. The other thing that I've learned from this time with COVID is the importance of discussions within the department and outside of the department. Because even when you use these triage systems, then you come up against other groups and other surgical specialties who also are saying, well, I also have these five emergent patients. And so it really becomes an issue of talking to these other folks and talking to your patients as well. And I've started leaving sense longer you know, of course, we have these patients that we worry will incur. But other than those patients, one of the things I was able to do with some of my patients, you know, when they come in and they have a stent placed for some emergency, we can't necessarily do the ureteroscopy. We've sort of trained our patients that they then come back in a couple of weeks. And so then you have to have these conversations with them and explain to them that actually you can keep your stent for quite some time and that's safe. And so having those conversations and opening those conversations with patients by giving them that data and making sure that they're comfortable with the fact that they can keep the sense for a few months has been really helpful for me with managing this. And then let's talk about some future solutions for stenting. I think we've all agreed at this point, and most urologists will agree that there's no perfect stent right now. But if we had our druthers, what would the perfect stent look like for you? Dr. Schwartz, we'll start with you. Oh, I think it's kind of the obvious, right? It's no stent-related symptoms, easy to place, provides adequate drainage, easy to remove, or there's been a lot of work. I think even Ben's group and certainly John Denstead's been working on a lot of the Canadian groups have been very forward on the dissolving stents. It's just been a struggle. It's been a total challenge in trying to develop these stents. I think the biggest problem with the stents that might dissolve, such as some of the vicral stents or just some of the other biocompatible dissolution materials, has been the degree and the variability in which they get absorbed dissolve. What might absorb or dissolve in three days for me, it might be three months for you. And then now we're left with this whole problem of incrustation and prolonged stent in a device that we expected to go away a while ago. We've looked at different configurations. When I was a fellow, we worked on the spiral stent. There have been tiny horsehair stents, just a little tiny trickle of a stent that might 
paralyze the ureter. It might interrupt that electrical cascade that starts in the renal pelvis of peristalsis. But those still cause symptoms. They still fail. They still obstruct. We've looked, as Ben mentioned before, and Kimura, you've mentioned before the materials that we're using. There's no material that has ever surfaced to be a winner. And then the removal. The stents on the string is clearly, I guess, the winner for many of these removals, but we can't always be comfortable leaving strings on the stent in a difficult ureteroscopy or something. You know, if they pull it out in the recovery room, will we regret that decision? Cost is another issue. Just the cost in developing these stents and then doing FDA trials and things is an absolute fortune. So now we're looking at a price point of $50 to $100 for one of these silicone stents, the polymer stents. The metal stent is roughly $1,000, $1,200 US. In Europe, their metal segmental stents are extremely expensive, have a high migration rate and a high encrustation rate. So we need to find companies who are willing to do the research and to get it done and are willing to invest in it, but then they're going to have to get their investments back and we have to respect that. And I'm not really contributing anything to the conversation because we all want the same thing in a stent and we have very little of it, at least I think right now. Well, Dr. Chu is certainly an expert on stents, and I know that he is still working on developing the perfect stent. Is there anything you can tell us, Dr. Chu, about what's coming down the pipe? I agree with everything that Brad has said. And also, in terms of disclosure, I do consult for Advitech, which is the developer of the European Degradable Stent that we're working on. And we've done a first-in-human study here in Vancouver, and we had to make a few adjustments to how the stent degrades. And another human study is coming. It was supposed to be late 2020, maybe early 2021, not just because of this whole COVID pandemic, and that's going to start in the U.S. But I think that will really solve the removal issue. But I think the biggest things for me is really going to be patient comfort and the fact that it has to drain as well, too. So obviously, the stent is kind of like a vicral material that will then degrade over time, usually between one to three weeks. Our initial one, the longest patient had five weeks. Like you said, there is some variability in the biology and it's a bit pH dependent and just a bit dependent on your urine composition as well, too. But I think so far it looks really promising. And in addition to that, because it's degrading, it's able to elute as well too. So if we sort of put some medications or drugs into the stent, as it degrades, it can actually release a lot of material that may help with pain and discomfort as well too. But besides sort of looking at new other kind of stents, and this is work, Kamara, that you've done, is basically trying to understand what the ureteral physiology and what the response is to actual stones and stents. Can there be a pharmacological method that we can either control the inflammatory cytokines, inflammatory markers within stented ureters, or can we just prevent the use of stents altogether and just open things up pharmacologically and keep things open? I'm actually very interested in that topic because I think that eventually we're going to get to a point where either we can develop a stent that is ideal for patients. And I know that we and some others are working on just that. And we're not just talking about stent pain, we're talking about stent infection. So, you know, I know that others are working on different types of stents that might be more resistant to infection. But from my perspective, I think that we're very far away from that stent. And in the meantime, we can't put all of our eggs in the one basket. We've got to start thinking beyond stents as well. 
are there going to be options for us for managing patients where we can drain the kidney, but not have to subject them to the pain and the potential injury that comes with stent placement? And the only way that we can do that is really getting a better sense of what goes on in the ureter, both in the benign setting and then in the setting of a stone or some other compression or obstruction. And that's the sort of work I'm interested in doing. And that's the sort of work that I think other people will also be participating in as well. So we'll see. I think it's a really exciting question. It's a question that certainly is very important to our patients. And it's something that lots of us are interested in getting involved in. So we'll see what the future holds. And so I just wanted to thank Dr. Chu and Dr. Schwartz for talking with us about all things stent. Thank you to the Endurologic Society, the Journal of Endurology, and Cook Medical for hosting this podcast. And we hope that it was helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.